Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Ads Lyson. If you want 15% off your surfing and outdoor gear, look no further. Go to Northcore on the internet and use the code, capital letters, Grumpy Surf with an extra capital F on the end of surf to receive 15% off your purchase. On the podcast today, I have a Royal Marines mountain leader. He has served operationally in Afghanistan and Iraq, but has also spent a lot of time near the North and South Poles in Arctic environments. He has some amazing stories and is a truly inspirational human being. Please enjoy my conversation with Matt Hoey. Matt Hoey, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Yeah, good, man. Thanks for having me. It's uh, been a long time coming, I think. Yeah, mate. I've asked you, what, maybe a couple of months ago to come on here and talk about your antics? We've been busy, so finally got time to sit down and get it done. Well, you've probably been busy. I, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> Life is busy, mate. Life is busy. Yeah, what have you been up to? Well, work, obviously work. Work's there. Um, and then family as well, because obviously schools are closed. So uh, trying to homeschool three kids and yeah just keep the family life going and, and sell my house as well so that's obviously in the back burner every couple of days you'll have someone come around and have a look so you have to tidy up all the kids mess and, and yeah get it looking good yeah so a little bit of background you're a uh, mountain leader in the Royal Marines let's go right right back to the very very start so let's go back to sort of like the early days um, as a kid you know were, were you always an outdoorsy person as a kid? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I grew up on a, on a council estate um, in Emsworth, back sort of Portsmouth way. Um, t- typical kind of single uh, single parent family, only kid, only child, uh, until my, my sort of my half-sister came along a bit later on. But, you know, I grew up, yeah, as we all did in the 80s, really, didn't we? You know, riding our BMXs and climbing trees and playing football. And football was my, my real passion as a kid. And, and right the way through until I joined the Corps, really, straight from school. Um, yeah, I was always outdoors. I was always looking for some sort of adventure, whether that be building a den in the woods or, or um, yeah, always outside. What brought you to join the Royal Marines then? Did you have a family history? Yeah, both uh, both my parents were in, in the army and, and also my stepdad was as well. So I think I was always kind of inclined to go that way. I was, I was in the cadets as a kid um, and... You know, I, as I was coming up to sort of end of school time, I explored the military and what it had to offer. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. thought about joining the army as an officer. And then I, I did the usual. I went to, as it was then, of course, the Armed Forces Careers Office. Went down there just to have a look at what was on offer. Uh, the duty bootneck in there grabbed me, called me to one side. Uh, took me into the room, showed me this hoofing video of the Corps. You know, all the good stuff they do. Um, clearly, it didn't show you. Uh, laying on sentry at 3am on the middle of Dartmoor <laughs> in the pouring rain uh, and it didn't show you the working parties that you do endlessly but it showed you all the good stuff um, and straight away that kind of hooked me and and you know what I was I was just finishing my GCSEs I didn't really know much about the core but I signed on there and then and kind of took the plunge I think much to my much to my mum's amusement I think but yeah I think I was always destined to do something military like I say, just because of the family, family background. And, and, and that's what, yeah, that's the, the way I ended up going. Did you end up going to the careers office and the guy getting you to do five pull-ups in the doorway? Do you remember doing I never, that? No, I never did the pull-ups. I, everyone always talks about that, but I never did. I don't know. I, I was 
fairly stacked when I was 16, as, as stacked as 16 year olds can be. So maybe you looked at me and thought, yeah, you'll, you'll crack that. But no, there were no pull ups. Like I said, I, I just literally went in there to have a look around and, and uh, yeah, the boot net grabbed me and, and the rest is history, as I say. Uh, it took, I think it was pretty quick back then. So from, from actually going in the careers office on that day, which would have been, it was GCSE time, so it would have been sort of May. Uh, and I walked, I walked through the gates of Limpston in that October. So it was pretty quick turnaround, really. Um, yeah, back in back in the times. So you joined up when you were sixteen. I was I was about three weeks after my seventeenth birthday. Yeah, because I was one of the oldest in the school year. So my birthday September. So uh, my birthday was September, and I joined uh, the corps on the nineteenth of October, ninety eight. So yeah, I was what sort of four or five weeks after my seventeenth birthday, which was really daunting for a young lad because although I you know I'd done a little bit of cadet time and things like that, but other than that, I I had no knowledge of what the military did or what was expected of me and I, I was probably a little bit naive actually um, and I really struggled with recruit training because of that um, you know I was fairly fit I wasn't the fittest by any means um, and I kind of sort of muddled my way through it as a lot of lads do but you know I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about it more but as you come on to your career you learn most of your learning is done after training isn't it it's not you know you, you tick the boxes to get through and get spat out the other end um, but most of your learning actually starts once you finish training, really. So, yeah, luckily. Did you join up knowing full well that everything to do with recruit training, Roman's recruit training, is all endurance-based? Or did you join up like me thinking that, uh, well, I, do you know what? I don't even know what I thought when I joined up because I went off other people's stories and, I, and there was about 20 of us at school that said we were going to do it. And I was the only person that actually went ahead and, and joined up. I was not the fastest runner, never have been long yeah, distance. Same, same. Um, so I was pretty much the same as you, mate. I literally joined up and I just muddled my way through it. That's a really good analogy of putting it. Yeah, very much so. But, you, you know, I've, I've spent time on training teams since and you see a lot of lads who, who do exactly that. You know, they're not the best and they muddle their way through, but they turn out to be really good Marines. And I think... As long as you can, you know, as long as you can do what's asked of you when you need to do it, um, then that, you know, that's all that people can really ask of you, I guess. And like I say, I was never the best recruit, but I turned out to be a, a half decent Marine, um, you know, and I, I did some all right stuff. So that was that was really good. But with regards to endurance side of it, and that, it's not my thing. And I've noticed as I get older, actually, your endurance definitely increases. But as a, when I was at school, I was a, I was a sprinter in athletics and my endurance was not good at all. So I didn't really know much, like I said, I didn't really know much about it. I remember um, doing my PRMC as it was then. Uh, and I had Dixie Dean, who you probably know as my PTI on that. And it was the most horrific three days I think I've ever had. I, but I don't know if that's because it was horrific or if it was just because you're not used to it quite possibly. But yeah, I remember the PRMC and the bottom field especially being particularly, particularly horrible. Going from, especially being a young lad, Going into an environment like that, that is alien to you. For you, for instance, you've come straight out of school and, and gone into that. It is a daunting prospect and we have both taken recruits through training. We've both been on training teams, whether it's as a recruit instructor or, you know, I was a PTI and a recruit instructor as well. And I think it's important that when people do something wrong or, you know, you're let's use the word loosely, punishing somebody to correct their ways. You're giving them the reason why you're doing it 
And I think when we went through, it was literally, you got thrashed and you didn't know why you were getting thrashed. And then it just came back to being, oh, it's, it's character building. Absolutely, yeah. And time had changed for the better. Um, and people, I'm sure they did it when we were in training. People say, oh, it's getting easier, it's getting easier. I don't think it is because actually there's far more to learn now. You know, guys that are going through training now have a lot more to learn, but they're also they're also taught in a much better way. So as you know, you would have done the same as me when we did the old um, the skill at arms course and the, the recruit uh, instructor sort of courses and things like that, um, defence train the trainer and that sort of stuff. You're actually taught how to teach. So like you say, back in the day, you know, you missed the target. We used to get a kick around the back of the helmet and told to apply ourselves. Well, what does that really mean? It doesn't really mean anything, does it? You know, so I think, uh, yeah, times have definitely changed. And I don't think it's the fact that training's got easier because there's probably guys coming through now who are far better trained than, you know, than, than we ever were purely because of the kit and equipment they're getting and, and the stuff that's being asked of them, especially with FCF now. But yeah, I think, I think times have changed for the better. You know, a lot of old bowls, you, you hear it all the time. Well, it's getting easier or, you know, don't make them like they're used to. Well, actually the standard's still the same. Guys are still still making the same standard or right? just maybe it's delivered slightly differently. And, and like I say, for the better, I think. The, the way that we're taught to deliver and teach people has has definitely come a long way especially when it comes to the cognitive side of things where we understand especially as you get older i definitely found this as i've got older is that you understand how people learn and the different ways that people learn it's not black and white it's not this is the way to do it if you don't do it you're gonna be wrong and that just i think that's a a, a life skill as well because it goes through throughout life whether you're in a business you own your own business you're in recruiting or something like that you take in these people and you're trying to develop them or give them a skill well, then some people are just not going to get that. And I think definitely now people are starting, instructors are starting to get taught the correct way to do it. Okay, yes, some people might say this is the pink and fluffy way of doing things. Granted it is, but I think if you're horrible to somebody, like what probably happened to us, definitely it did to me, is that I am not going to learn anything because I'm, I'm in fear of the repercussions of what's going on. Whereas if you talk to somebody as a normal human being and you try and put it away in, it, in lots of different ways so that they get it, they're going to learn far more quickly than they are being terrified. Yeah, absolutely. And, and CTC has really led the way with its, its way it delivers training, you know, and there's a lot of other organisations out there that want to be like CTC because of how it's guys, you know, how we deliver that training and like you say, you know, you can only shout at someone so much, can't you? Because at some point they're just going to turn off and, and nothing's going to go in then. So th there's a lot of thought to say that, well, actually it's the military and it should be, you know, it should be an authoritarianism. It should be didactic teaching. Well, actually, yes, it should, because there's going to be times when you need to have to shout. But also, like you say, not everyone learns in the same way. And quite often giving someone a piece of equipment and telling them, well, you've got 10 minutes to go away and find out how that works. That may well be better teaching for them and, you know, a little bit of giving them a little bit of autonomy to go away and find out how that works rather than actually giving them, you know, reading them out the pamphlet that you've read up on the night before. So, yeah, there's got to be different ways of doing it. And, and I think, like I say, I think 
the way we're doing it now is far better than it was. What was your key memory from being in recruit training? Uh, we could talk about recruit training for hours, but what was your key takeaway? What's the most memorable experience that you remember? I, yeah, I've got loads, but do you know what? The one that um, the one that always reminds me is Christmas. So last week before Christmas, obviously everyone gets Christmas dinner, don't they? But we were in the field. I forget which exercise it was, probably around Hunter's Moon sort of time, but uh, we were brought out of the old hot box um, into the field and we were all given our Christmas meal out of a hot box in our mess tins. And, and then it just went then into typical training team, got an hour to fill sort of mode. So we did the duty Pac-Man, you know, where all the guys lined up and we were going left and right and the, the training team were throwing potatoes and sprouts at us and that sort of stuff. And then we had some music, some Christmas music, and uh, one of the lads was covered in talcum powder and he was made to run around as the snowman. So it really brought out that cheerfulness and adversity because, it, A, it was absolutely freezing. It was pouring down in rain, you know, it was miserable. It was, it was horrendous, but actually... Yeah, the old cheerfulness and adversity really came through there because the training team, they they had a laugh, all right? It was at our expense, um, but we all had a you know we all had a bit of fun and a bit of a laugh at the end of it. So that was probably you know obviously other than pass out and nothing's ever going to top getting that green beret, is it? And, and marching off that parade square. Um, but yeah, that that was kind of my my lasting memory really is the snowman in in, in the winter and would be common. Do you know what? A lot of people have said this, and I don't know whether it's a cliche, and you've just said it there, was getting your green beret was up there with with a lot of things. I'm going to counter that and say it wasn't. It wasn't for me. I got to a point where I was just like, I've had enough. <laughs> I, I just want to, I just want to pass out a train and I just want to get out of here. Okay, look, this might really annoy quite a few people be saying this but when I got given my lid Greenberry and I got you know we got our uh, CS95 and we yeah. got our flashes to to sew on there I was just like that I just can we get out of here yet <laughs> I think there is a little bit of that isn't there and, and you know there's a lot there's a lot to be said for these lads that you know go through training and end up as a, a clerk or a driver which you know people always say about oh that's not what you join up for but Ultimately, at the end of, depending on how long you've been in training, depending on, you know, what you've been through, what injuries you had, then you probably want that little bit of a respite for a year or two, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's never going to be an anti-climax, is it? Because you've got your family there and all that. But I just think, again, it's the unknown then. You've, you've now gone from being the biggest fish in the little bowl on the Friday and then on Monday morning, you're, you're a little fish in a massive bowl again in a commando unit and you're you're getting sprogged off to go and get the milk from the naffy or whatever it might be. So, yeah, there's a lot of unknowns with it, isn't there? So when you passed out of training, where did you go Go from there? Did you go straight to a commando unit? Or, in fact, I'm going to digress with this question a little bit, actually. So, you know, when you come towards the end of training, you have all these lectures and they tell you, this is the career path you could take. You know, you can have, you can be a PTI, you can be a Mortman, you can be in heavy weapons, um, you can be a clerk, you can be a drill instructor. Did you have an idea in your head what career path you wanted to take in the Marines or did you literally just go, yeah, cheers, and just kind of take the GD role as it went through or did you have a clear path in your mind that what you wanted to do? I, I didn't really. Um, I'd, I'd grown up a lot around boats and living on the coast and uh, there was an inkling to, to become an LC. 
uh, which didn't really pan out for, for one reason or another. But I ended up going to four two as a as a GD Marine, and you know we're talking before DSS, before PSQs and, and SSQs and all that sort of stuff. So you you would go and be a GD Marine, and some of the GD Marines I joined K Company straight out of training at four two. And, some of the guys there have been GD Marines for five, six, seven years, you know, and, and not even looking at getting a juniors. So it was a completely different core back then. Um, and you had time to experience the core a little bit and see what was around. Yeah, just sort of enjoy it a little bit. I think the, pro the problem with now is you've only, you only get a year or whatever you get as a GD Marine or maybe two years, I think. And it's just so rushed because you're straight away, you're pressured into, well, what do you want to be next? Well, I don't really know because I've only seen the core for a year. I haven't really experienced that much. Um, but I, I was quite lucky in that I did seven years as a GD Marine before I picked up juniors. And, yeah, you know, I managed to see a lot of the core and, and I had no idea that I was going to be an ML uh, right through until I did a I did an MSI's course after my first Norway. And I was at CLR, actually, and Bob Madison was a unit ML. He needed guys to go on the... On the MSI's course, what was then, you know, military ski instructor course as it was. Uh, and I walked in the train office just one day and he happened to know that I'd done a Norway because he took me on it and he said, right, you're going to Norway as an MSI. And I went out and and don't get me wrong, I was a terrible, terrible skier on my first Norway. I had an absolutely terrible time. So I thought, right, I'm going on a ski instructor course and I can't actually ski for toffee. So I went out and, and the MSI's course as it was, was a month, a full month, a day on the slope, day on the track. Uh, and when I came back from there, my skiing was pretty decent. So I went out to um, to Norway after Christmas with Bob and uh, took three cold weather warfare courses through with CLR. And we were having a beer one night in, in, the, in the bar and he said, when you're doing your, uh, when you're doing your MLs course then, Matt? And I kind of, you know, I'd had a few beers by then and I was like, yeah, come on then, let's, you know, let's give it a crack. And that was back in the day when you could just phone up and get someone loaded, you know, not like you can now. It was very much mates rates. Uh, he called up to uh, the guy running the next aptitude and that was me. I was on it. Um, so, yeah, I never really, never really sort of had a, a vision of going ML, but I enjoy, I really enjoyed the Norway piece and enjoyed the skiing. And when I went back as an instructor, I saw, I saw Norway from the other side of the fence. So rather than the novice side, I saw the instructor side and I really enjoyed that. And I thought, yeah, I'll have a piece of that. And, and the rest is kind of history, really. Yeah, Norway is a, a very unique place. So I, we'll talk about that a little bit later on, I guess. I've got a really good story about Bob Madison, and it, it makes me laugh, even now. I remember we were all lined out, the very first Norway I did, we were all lined out, and he was doing like an opening brief. And it was, <laughs> excuse my French, but it was the first time I'd ever been called a shit cunt and, <laughs> and an Elson. For somebody that doesn't know what an Elson is, it's basically a uh, field toilet where you take a crap and and stuff and it gets all bagged up and it's just left in the snow basically when you're on exercise. And I thought it was the funniest thing on the planet. And do you know what? I got really good friends with um, with Bob What 10, 15 years later when I was down at 4-2 Commando and I always remind them of it. And it's, it was one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. Such a good guy. There's a bit, yeah. It's, it's a lot of good guys. It's the core, isn't it? Of course, there's a lot of good guys out there. But yeah, and, and th little things like that stick in the back of your mind. Yeah, real good times. We we skipped a few years there. So you passed out of training. 
Did you end up doing any tours? Did you because that would have been you well when you passed that train would have been what? Yeah, July ninety nine. So ninety nine, yeah. Uh, I went on to do, um, one of the, one of the med trips on Aurora. I think it was in two thousand. I was on Ocean and I was only eighteen at the time. It was back in the day actually when um, you didn't get LSA days, believe it or not. So you had to do eighteen months to get LSA. So I missed out on a, on a lot of LSA days there. But yeah, we headed out to uh, to the med to do a med trip, and um, on HMS Ocean, and we were in Marseille on exercise, and we got fastballed back to the ship just really randomly fastballed back to the ship for for no reason that anyone could sort of talk about. And then it wasn't until about three or four days later. Um, when we were, we knew we'd been fastballed to go somewhere. We weren't sure where, and you know, it was all mega hush hush. And it was this is before the days of mobile phones and internet, so no one really knew. And and the, the first we heard of where we were was um, one of the guys called home. I think it must have been his parents or whoever it was said, "Oh, you're you're going to Sierra Leone." So obviously that spread like wildfire around the ship, and and we ended up going ashore uh, in Sierra Leone. And I spent four four weeks or so between the airport at Lungi, the Freetown, and and down in living in some lady's back garden. And it's like an absolute oven in the back of a furnace in the middle of the jungle. And so I was really lucky that at 18, I'd been thrown straight into an operational environment. Well, it wasn't massively kinetic. I don't think we really did a lot. You know, we didn't get any rounds down or anything like that, but the threat was always there. And it was great as a young lad, a young 18 year old lad, it was really good to experience that operational environment and actually everything you trained for, you know, even down to just doing sentry, you know, when you're on ops, it's completely different to being on an exercise because you know that you need to be on your game. You know, you can't fall asleep, you know, it's essentially life or death there. So yeah, I was really lucky to get straight out. And this is a time when, when ops were, were in an abundance really, because Northern Ireland was still going on and I came back from uh, came back from Sierra Leone, and then we went out to Northern Ireland a few months later. So I had six months in Northern Ireland at Fork Hill. Uh, I think we were one of the last uh, companies to actually to operate out of Fork Hill before it was shut down there. So by you know by nineteen twenty, I'd done a lot in my career in a very very short period of time. But the experience and the stuff I'd, I'd experienced there was was really valuable for me because. It brought me on leaps and bounds. You know, I'd come from being this young lad from a, a fishing village from the South Coast who was fairly, you know, fairly inward looking and didn't have a lot of confidence into the core where that obviously brought it out a little bit in you. And then straight away into, into two operations, which was just crazy. From there, we came back from Northern Ireland and um, we were launched then straight in, into Ontelic, as you know. And yeah, the whole sort of, two, three year period was just a crazy whirlwind of operations. And it's a shame that lads aren't experiencing that nowadays because a lot of guys are joining up. I was chatting to one of my lads yesterday who, who's, you know, he's thinking about possibly leaving the core and he just wants to go on ops. And unfortunately it isn't forthcoming at the minute because there isn't an appetite for it for, for many reasons. But we were really lucky. I mean, you were the same. We were really lucky to, to get those in at an early age. Eh? Yeah, we had, I think we were by the Second World War Look, don't get me wrong. I know people didn't want to go to war. They didn't want to go and fight the Germans or anything like that. I'm using this in as, as an example, but we joined the Corps. We all saw the same videos. We saw the Falklands films and, you know, an ungentlemanly act and read the books and all and all that sort of thing that kind of made you want to join, heard all the stories from people too. So when you get that name a raw marines commander you are a commando so 
it's embedded into you and ingrained and indoctrinated as you go through that 32, what is now a 36 week process from going from a normal human being to, I'm going to sound really cheesy, commando fighting machine, because all you want to do is go and fight. That's what you're trained to do. We were very, very lucky that we got to do that. We were in that environment where you had Sierra Leone, Islanders just finishing, then the Twin Towers happened. So we went to Afghanistan, then Iraq happened and we did the invasion of Iraq and then the countless, the uh, the next Herrick tours happened for the next 10 years. You know, we got to do what we trained to do. And like you were saying there, it, it's quite a difficult situation for people to be in. But at the end of the day, and this is what I used to say to, to recruits on training and one of them who sadly lost his life during Afghanistan. You've got to be careful what you wish for as well, because yes, you do train for this. However, when you get into that situation where there are live rounds flying past your head, people are getting blown up. It is a, a surreal environment to be in until it's realistic where people are taking casualties, we are taking casualties. Then it becomes real and then you're like, ah, is this really for me? And yeah. you can and you can see that through the people that have done the five years. Maybe they've gone done their four years when they passed out of training and gone to Afghanistan, and then they've seen it for real. They've gone shit, man. I I don't want to be involved in this anymore. I mean, I think we're a little bit weird because we stayed and and you know and grounded out. But yeah, it's definitely something that my my thing that I used to tell people is you need to be careful what you wish for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, we both we both lost a lot of good mates in, in Afghanistan and, and absolutely you should be careful what you wish for. But I think for young lads coming through, you know, they do all the training and we were the same. You know, there's nothing better than being in the middle of a scrap. Is there? Let's face it. I mean, some of my my funniest times have been in the middle of, of a firefight, but yeah you, you you have to sort of counterbalance that you know and, and we were the lucky ones who came back so yeah it's, it's very much a case of yeah lads you know you might wish for ops but sometimes shit gets real eh? yeah <laughs> i could get real real quick too real quick yeah okay so yeah we've, we've talked a little bit about a lot of afghan and uh and iraq kind of briefly and you've gone um and you've talked about how you got to be persuaded to become a mountain leader. Two-part question, really. First of all, can you just talk briefly about what a mountain leader is? And then also, to an extent, talk about what it takes to make a mountain leader as well? Yeah, sure. So um, so MLs are, are the UK's cold weather operators and instructors, if you like, for one of a better expression. Um, there's not been obvious, there's only about 60 of us in the whole of UK defence. And it's our job to to deliver both an, an operational capability and an instructional capability as well. And a lot of people, I think in recent years, have gone, gone with the theory that MLs are just there to instruct. And it does feel a little bit like that sometimes. But we also do have an operational output as well with the likes of SRS. But our, our bag really is, so vertical access, whether that be uh, rock, you know, cliffs, ice, or um, buildings or maritime as it is now, which is being developed all the way. Um, so getting up stuff, getting down stuff, obstacles, surveillance and reconnaissance. Again, the, the whole GMR piece, which is a lot of people will probably tell you, are, you know, GMR is dead now. 
ground mounted reconnaissance because we've got drones, we've got UAVs, we've got stuff that can do that, satellites and things. But actually, when all said and done, if, if that all goes down or if there's a problem, then you need eyes on the ground. And that's that's our job to do is to get in and get in and get that information back um, to the HQs. And then clearly a big part of our role is the is the cold weather piece. So that was termed as Arctic training. We now sort of we can use the term cold weather because you don't necessarily have to be in the Arctic. But um, those are our three sort of main deliverables. So the the VA stuff, the SNR, and the cold weather piece. And, and like I say, there's not many of us, so it's a busy, busy branch to be in because you're constantly being requested for for delivering something, whether that be some climbing down in Cornwall or some some urban stuff in London. Or, or quite clearly a lot of a lot of the year we're out in Norway so we spend usually January till March in Norway delivering cold weather training to the rest of not only three commando brigades but um, it's becoming more and more the army I think the RAF Reds are out there this year as well having a piece of the action so yeah it's a busy busy branch to be in but it's also because it's so busy there's a lot of opportunities there you know I've been really lucky to travel to some of the places I've been purely because I'm an ML and I probably wouldn't have had that if I was in any other specialization. Again, you know, going back to what drew me to be an ML was I didn't really sort of aspire to be one, but I, I had a lot of mates who are MLs and I'd heard a lot of stories and worked with a lot of them. You know, my first ever section commander was a, was an ML and he was probably one of the best guys I ever worked with. And I guess that must've stuck in my mind a little bit that I wanted to be like him and, and, and go down that route. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a busy, busy specialization, but the, again, the experiences that you gain and the knowledge, you know, qualifications and things like that, and, and just the whole rope work piece, you know, it's, it's a really good line to be in. Talk about a little bit about, about the training as well. So there are certain phases that you go through, don't you? So, you know, when you go back down to Limpston and there's, there's a climbing phase, there's an Arctic phase, there's a recce phase as well. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the MLs course is nine months long. Starts usually June, July, sort of July, August. You've got summer leave in there as well. Uh, and it finishes post uh, Norway in March. So it's a long old nine months. And if you add on to that your command training, which you need to do before you go on it to become a corporal, um, you know, you're talking the best part of a year there. So it's not it's not something to be taken lightly. And it is a course that you have to go into head on with a full aspiration that that's what you want to go because quite often you'll see people that come in and, and straight away you think, well, they, they're a little bit half-hearted with this and, and generally they're going to fall by the wayside because you need to be committed to it. So yeah, we start with a, a month of climbing, rock climbing down in Cornwall. Again, going right back to the roots of Cliff Assault Wing post-Second post World War, where everything was established down in Cornwall. Places like Bazegren, Commando Ridge, uh, Senan, a lot of the, the climbing routes that have been put up down there were actually put up by cliff leaders in the 50s um so we go right back to basics you know if you've never climbed before as i had never climbed before when i went on the twos course you know again it's, it's slightly shock of capture because there's a lot of information you've got to take in there in the first few weeks so there's a month there but that's also the conditioning phase as well so whilst you'll climb sort of most of the day sort of nine till three there's a good fizz session at the end of that uh, it usually involves the beach uh, sandbags stretchers a lot of firemen's carries, all sorts of uh, crazy crawls up and down sand dunes, but it serves a purpose because not only is it conditioning you to the later phases, so the mountain, the mountaineering phases in Scotland, you know, you're carrying heavy ops burgens, but it also kind of acts as a, 
a bit of a weeding out process as well because you don't want guys later on in the course who are they're not up to up to it physically and mentally then that Cornwall phase is really there to weed them out so we usually lose quite a few guys in Cornwall through both injury and voluntary withdrawal or whatever it might be so the, the Cornwall phase is tough and I really struggled again you know we were talking earlier about not being a runner and there's a lot of running in Cornwall so I really struggled with that uh, and I used to see some of, some of the other guys that were on course with me you know really good lads who are absolute whippets and they're out of the blocks you know every fizz sesh they were at the front leading the way you know six and a half seven minute mile guys um and i really struggled with the first cornwall cornwall uh, month but i spoke to again another old and bold ml uh, andy ives i spoke to andy and i said he said to me how are you getting on and i said oh, i'm really struggling to be honest with the fizz and he just sort of looked at me and he said matt as long as you're there at the end that's all anyone can ask and, and I, I sort of held on to that and i was there at the end and and that's what you know that's what got me through the cornwall phase uh, you then progress on to the mountaineering sort of side of things where you are more looking at more your endurance stuff and your big legs. And that's where I then sort of came into my own because I'm not a runner, um, but I can plod all day and I can yomp all day. And that's what that's what you really need to be. Certainly in the Scotland phase, which is coming up to Christmas, where you are um, carrying a big, big, heavy Bergen. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of miles across across some really pretty tough terrain. You know, you're up to your knees in water every two minutes. You're falling over in the middle of the night, um, and you're climbing up and down, you know, cliff faces to, to get where you need to be to to get that OP in and to to get that information back to back to the HQ. So it really, it really, you know, it really comes into force on the MLS course that you can either be that racing snake at the front or you can be the the strong yonker lad of which both are equally needed um, but you need that sort of mental resilience as well to get you through because i remember three four o'clock in the morning in scotland just pouring down the rain everything's soaked and i'm talking your bergen soaked your sleeping bag soaked you know you're two weeks into a three-week exercise in december in scotland and that takes some real mental mental toughness to get through you know, and, and then you're into a 10-day survival phase, which sounds good. Actually, it's pretty boring. You just sat around in a, in a hoops looking at the fire for 10 days, wondering, you know, what mischief you can get up to on a little island off the coast of Scotland. It becomes pretty mind-numbing, but you're always, always thinking about your first meal. And, and this, is, this is one thing I remember, actually, is um, spent 10 days in the hooch in, on, on Eilie in survival. And we all got on the ferry at the end of it. We had a, a quick wash in the river because there were, no, there were no shower facilities or anything like that. We were given our clothes. We had a quick wash in the lake. And we got on the ferry to go back to mainland and everyone was straight to the buffet uh, restaurant, as you would be. And we were all ordering loads and loads of scram. But our stomachs had shrunk that much from not eating. We hadn't eaten for 10 days. And our stomachs had shrunk that much. Literally, we had a couple of mouthfuls and everyone was just throwing all this food in the bin. But yeah, no. And, and then you're into Christmas leave. So... At this point now, all your mates that went on selection, they've all finished. So they're all badged as SF operators uh, and you've got to go to Norway <laughs> for three months. So, yeah, again, you know, but at this point, the light's at the end of the tunnel and Norway is, if, if you're an all right skier, then it's not too bad. There's still some long, long Norgi finale finishes with a 200k ski across the Hardanger Bido. It did then, it was, it's in a different location now. But um, yeah, some long, long skis, some heavy Bergens and some real soul searching in the middle of the night to get yourself there. But do you know what? You get through it. It's like everything, isn't it? I'm sure it's the same with PTI's course. You know, there's 
there's weeks where you think i just and, and back to recruit training as well i just can't get through this but you do you take every day as it comes and you keep marching on that bearing and eventually you get there i talked to uh, lee spencer i use the analogy of a tick list you did yeah yeah it was a great podcast actually he's a good guy yeah, and and I and I always I still use it now where you have something that's hard and you use that as a comparison. So the next thing you do that's harder, that's your next tick list. And you know, you talking about that, there was one one Norway um, that I did, and I got absolutely smashed for about three days. And it wasn't it wasn't because I was rubbish at something. It was be- just because we just got pinged to go on like a an ambush we got to go and do a patrol somewhere or go and do a recce or uh, or set up an observation post and it was just one thing after another and it was the same six guys doing it and I was absolutely in the clip and I, and I remember skiing up to this ambush site and we all got lined out in this wood block by this track i I was a really good skier i'd skied like when i was younger i was typical middle class skiing (laughs) holidays with the school and all that sort of thing so i I, I was all right and some of the lads that were with they were absolute horrendous they were real biffs (laughs) yeah big real biffs falling left right and center pulks getting smashed everywhere carrying all the kit and I remember going to this to this ambush site and we all lined up and literally we were there for about two seconds, ambush set, and all you heard was <laughs> like <laughs> so loud. It was so funny. Oh, and then God. and then we got bumped and we ended up having to like break contact for about two cane snowshoes. It was ridiculous. Brilliant. I remember uh, actually you reminded me of something there. We were when I was in tra- going back to training bit, I know, but I was in training and we were in an ambush and classic one happened and the, the, the enemy walked past and no one opened up on them. Uh, and then, so they came back the other way, whistling a life on the ocean wave, at which point obviously they got the good news like, but yeah, classic ambush, isn't it? We've all been there. Training scenarios, like you were saying, are made to be difficult for realistic situations. I mean, I'm sure you've been in an ambush live, very similar to what I have, and it is nothing really like to... What, what the real life situation is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. So so on the conclusion of, of the MLs course, you are pretty much the Royal Marines and the British Forces version of a outdoor pursuit instructor to a certain extent because, you know, you're qualified in climbing, mountaineering, skiing, um, military side of things. You know, you've got different jobs you've got you know srs which is for old money or srs is a special reconnaissance squadron yeah um surveillance and reconnaissance squadron yeah what was uh brf or yeah and old money yeah yeah so brigade reconnaissance force or brigade patrol troop was the original one which were like the forward recce elements much like the pathfinders for the paras yeah correct there, there are lots of different jobs to bounce into, which I think is probably what makes the ML branch quite appealing to a lot of people. However, this is the question that I'm going to pose to you. Why did you go for something that is nine months long, knowing full well that you could have gone on special forces selection and done two thirds of the time? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a classic question. The million dollar question is why, why not SF? 
Um, and, and let's not take away anything from SF because although their, their initial uh, selection is six months, of course, they go on after that and do more and more continuation training. Um, so it's not that the MLS course is longer, it's just um, the actual course itself is longer. But so, yeah, I mean, for me, I had uh, I had two SBS troop sergeants and this is back in the day again, we're going back to when every unit had a, an SC1 and, and I had two um, troop sergeants when I was a young Marine who were both SCs and they were just, you know, they were awesome guys and you look up to them and think, yeah, you know, it's exactly super soldiers, exactly the sort of bloke I want to be like. And they were, but they, again, they were incredibly fit and when it came to fizz as a young lad, I just never could keep up with them. And I guess that kind of um, always hung in the back of my mind would be like, am I, have I got it in me physically? So although the MLS course is physically hard and physically demanding, um, it never really, it never really caught my eye to go on selection. I toyed with it a little bit after Afghan because I kind of thought, well, I've, I've kind of done everything now as a bootneck. Um, you know, I've been on ops, and 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 Herrick Nine was a particularly crunchy tour as well and I thought do you know what I, I've done enough now I, I think I'll have a go at section but I never got around to it and then of course kids come along and family come along and, and then you've got to make that decision between you know do I want to be away and let's face it you know the guys at, at Paul and Hereford they're away constantly aren't they and unfortunately there's a lot of divorced guys there so do I really want to go down that route possibly not and and then you know I'm at the point now where I'm, I'm well past it anyway you know I'm 40 years old this year so it's definitely not going to happen, but I think I just got to a point where I was content with where I was, especially with the MLS course. I, I was happy that I'd, I'd done it. I was really enjoying the noise every year. I was really enjoying, you know, the climbing. I've done a, a couple of good expeditions, and I guess I was just content in where I was. And yeah, it, it never really became a thing to go on selection, so I never did. I'd like to talk a little bit about your time when you're on HMS Endurance. So HMS Endurance is a, a naval ship that goes and documents different environments, mainly around sort of like the Southern Atlantic. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So I've got to correct you there. So I never did endurance, mate. I went on a no. I went on an expedition to to Antarctica. I, I wasn't. I've never been lucky enough to do that, and that is a really unique job. So. Um, for those that don't know, HMS Endurance, as it was, is now obviously HMS Protector. Yeah, they're tasked with um, yeah uh, Antarctic exploration and survey and all that kind of stuff. And there's an ML1 on there, um, and that's a you know that's a great job, isn't it, to do that for a year or or two years. It used to be two years. It's now one year, but just to go down there and 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 when I was down there, although I wasn't on. I wasn't on a protector, I was on a, a civvy yacht, believe it or not, and another little jolly I managed to, to get onto. Um, it, yeah, what a place, man, Antarctica. It's just so remote and, and just amazing. You know, the wildlife and the, the nature that's down there, just it's, honestly, it's breathtaking. You know, it sounds a little bit beef, but there's places when you're down there, you just look and you just think, this is just incredible, you know. And I remember we were sailing along at a, at a pod of... A pod of killer whales came alongside and then you'd have you look out the other side you'd have um penguins porpoising and yeah just a phenomenal place and i spent a little bit of time on south georgia as well because the expedition i was on was to uh retrace the the shackleton route it was a, it was the centenary of the endurance um 
That's and, right, yeah, because I've obviously done my research. <laughs> <laughs> I, re I remember now you talking about the Shackleton stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, what an, if you haven't read up on the Shackleton, the, the, the endurance expedition, what a, you know, what a guy and what a leader. Um, and, and people who were in the party, like Tom Crean, absolutely phenomenal guys. And, you know, we're going back to a time when down wasn't a thing and synthetic sleeping bags weren't a thing. You know, these guys were hauling hobnail boots and woolen jumpers and, you know, at minus 30, minus 40 for, for two or three winters, wintering over in, in Antarctica, you know, they were, they were tough, tough guys. And the opportunity came up to, to retrace the Shackleton route on a Navy expedition. And I absolutely jumped at it. Um, and yeah, what a great time we had. I totally underestimated the, uh, I totally underestimated the sailing because I'm not a sailor. And that was four or five days at a time, just at 22 degrees, just, going along trying to you know trying to make scram trying to do all your daily daily stuff that you do making wets and showering or whatever it might be and doing it on you know on the tilt whilst doing four hour watches and it was it was real tough and i really underestimated the sailing side of it because obviously i was there purely for the, the mountaineering the leadership leading the guys across across south georgia and again you know thinking about the you know the remoteness of it and the safety sightings if something had happened down there you know we would have we would have had real dramas getting someone evacuated, but, you know, luckily it never came to that. And we, we had a great team. You know, the selection process for that was two years long. Real good guys and, you know, memories that I'll just, you know, I'll have forever because it was a really good trip. What are the other opportunities that you've had coming out of being in ML apart from the Shackleton trip? Because there are lots of different ones, you know, expeditions up Everest and and different things like that that the Royal Marines mountain leaders have a part in. Have you done anything else like that? Yeah, so um, I was lucky again. I was I've been quite lucky with my expeditions, and I've always kind of been in the right place at the right time. So the first one I did was to Alaska, and I came off the ML2s course. I went back to four two, um, and it just came up on orders one day that there was an expedition to to Alaska, and they needed MLs for it. And I, you know, I threw my hat in the ring, never thinking that they would take a a young ML2 who was still wet behind the ears and only just finished his MLs course. And I got the phone call to say, yeah, you know, you're in. And I was very lucky to go on it with a couple of really, really experienced ML1s who've led expeditions all over the world. And I learned so much from him that time, you know, it, it was such a great trip and it was all, um, it was all funded, privately funded by the, and it was to raise money for the raw, uh, for the uh, fire brigade benevolent fund. And although we didn't summit, just the experience that I, you know, they, that I gained from that, I, you know, I had a personal best altitude height and things like that and leading guys back down who were suffering from, from altitude sickness and things like that. It was such a great trip. And then I went on from there to, to lead the thing. The thing with expeditions is if you get your name in, in the ring and you do a good job, you'll be asked back again. Um, so then the, the Everest expedition came up and that was to take injured service personnel. It was a, uh, Project Fortitude, as it was called then, to take injured service personnel to uh, Everest region. And there was three teams. There was a climbing team who were going to climb Amma de Blam. There was a, a high altitude development team, which I ended up being on, who were going to climb three 6,000 meter peaks. And there was the, the trekking teams who were going to trek to base camp. And that had people like Ben McBean, you know, double amputees, guys in there with PTSD, guys in there with gunshot wounds. Uh, and I had, on my team, I had a, a lower limb amputee, Matt Kingston. I had Cy Greenin, who you might know, who was shot in the chest and had a sucking chest wound and he had a part of his lung missing. And we had Danny Claricoats who was suffering from PTSD. So I had three guys, one in each rope team, you know, who were injured service personnel. And the aim was to get them 
two, three, six thousand meter peaks, which we did, and and it was a phenomenal achievement, you know, especially for Matt. As you know, um, amputees expel a lot more energy than than uh, able-bodied guys do. So for him to to summit three six thousand meter peaks was an absolute phenomenal achievement. So yeah, the expeditions have been amazing. But again, part of being an ML, we get to we get to go to um, Switzerland every year, and I know this is a bone of contention for the PTIs. Uh, we get to go to Switzerland every year on on exercise ice flip, which is a month long uh, high altitude concentration where we we go out in, in small teams and develop our high altitude skills which is you know again it's a really phenomenal trip and it's an absolute absolute pleasure to be able to go and do that and to be paid for it and it's a real you know it's a real gift that that Pusser gives you and, and it's one of the few sort of things left in the military I think where you can you know you can go and have fun and, and get some real great experience and get some real knowledge as well while you're there so I think what we're kind of missing when we're talking about this is that the mountain leaders branch, much like the physical training branch, is probably one of the oldest branches still as a additional qualification or a specialist qualification that the military holds. And it's quite a unique position to be in because not many, well, I don't, I don't think the army or the navy or the RAF hold positions like that and and have the specialist qualifications that that you guys do which is quite a unique position to be in and probably why the training is long is to make sure that the right caliber of person is going to be above and beyond the people that you're taking on the mountain in the snow in different positions because they know that they can operate on their own in those positions. And I think that's something that kind of gets missed in translation. I mean, I take the piss all the time. Come on. I take the piss out of you all the time, call you a rock monkey, a rock ape and stuff like that. We have a lot but, of bants, mate, don't we? we do. Oh, mate, lo- <laughs> loves, a bit, loves a bit of bants. One of those things where when you really kind of tie it down, and this might be the beer talking, I don't know, but... I haven't got a word for it. It's just really cool, you know? And, and to have something within within a service like the Royal Marines to say that, you know, people are able to do that, it's pretty second to none, if I'm perfectly honest. It is, yeah. And I think you can, put, you can probably bring LCs in on that one, I guess, as well, because it's such a specialist capability. And, and again, I don't think there's anyone outside of the Corps who really does that amphibiosity piece quite like the LCs do. I mean, we, we all know they want to chuck you out 200 metres from the beach and get you wet, but, you know. Because it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's a real skill, isn't it, you know, to get to get the guys. And, and again, it comes back to what, what are the cores to kind of specialist areas? Well, they're amphibiosity and, and vertical assault or mountaineering type scenarios. So, you know, when you come off of that landing craft, there's a good chance you're going to hit a cliff and you need to get up it. So those are two skills that, you know, really, really need to be on, on our game, I think, within the core, yeah. What have you got going on outside of the military at the moment? So I know you've got a, a couple of things that you do. You do um, a little bit of stuff up on Dartmoor. I, I'm lucky enough to live on Dartmoor, and I'm also, I'm also lucky enough that I went away and used the knowledge and experience that I had as an ML to get civilian qualifications. And, I mean, you know as a PTI that, there's plenty of opportunities there if you can find the time to get away and get yourself 
you know, civilian accredited with your qualifications, which you guys, you get, you get a fair few calls anyway, don't you? But the actual MLS course doesn't give you any uh, qualifications as such, but what it does give you is an extensive logbook to take away to someone and say, look, that's, you know, that's what I can do. And they will then accredit you. So I've been lucky enough to do all my stuff through uh, JSMTC and get my, you know, my summer ML, my rock climbing instructor and all that sort of stuff. And, and that's allowed me then to go away and take out my own insurance uh, and work with other other guys and, and do some stuff, yeah, on, on the weekends and outside. And, you know, as much as what, what I do, certainly at the minute, because obviously I'm still in the core, but what I do isn't going to pay the mortgage. It's a bit of extra pocket money on the side, but it's great. You know, Sunday afternoon up on Dartmoor, taking some kids climbing and just some of them, you know, they're coming back week after week and you see the, the thrill that they're getting from it. And there's a couple of there's a couple of kids there with, you know, with your mild learning difficulties and things like that. And for them to be outdoors, which let's face it, kids don't do enough of nowadays um, for them to be outdoors and the achievement they get when they, you know, when they top out on one of the climbs, it's just it's absolutely brilliant. Um, and one, you know, one of the things I looked at was becoming a teacher after after I leave the core. I've done, you know, I've done a couple of extra teaching calls, topping up stuff. I've done military side, and and you know, I don't think there's anything better really than watching watching youngsters just having a great time. You know, doing a bit of climbing, doing a bit of whatever it is they're doing, and just being on Dartmoor. And, and like I say, I'm lucky enough to live right on the edge of the moor, and it's just got so much to offer up there. You know, and, and we know it as the place of misery, don't we? From, from laying in a puddle at 3am in the pouring rain or yomping across tour to tour, you know, in, in the blowing wind. But actually when, you know, when you spend the summer on Dartmoor and you look at what it's got to offer, you know, the wild swimming or the climbing or the, you know, the hill walking or whatever, it's just such a great place to, to base yourself. And I, I love it here. You know, I'll, I'll probably never move from where I am to be fair. It's just got everything. What do you find is one of the most memorable moments that you've had in your career to date? What's what, what stands out? We had a, a full-on sort of blues parade um, presentation at the end of the ML2s course, and that was that was a massive day, you know, because it was the end of nine months, and very much like when you pass out of training, you know, and all your family come down, and it was it was all great stuff like that. But for me, it's always going to have to be ops because the time I spent in Afghanistan on Herrick Nine, I was out there with four two recce. Um, four to the role we were doing was battle group south and we were very much intelligence led so we would act on information that was coming in on where to go you know where were the taliban strongholds where were we like to find drugs or whatever it might be and we were we were going places where no western forces had been which meant that the ied threat was really low and obviously that's a good thing uh but it also meant we were catching guys unawares and people wouldn't you know, we would just turn up and people weren't aware we were turning up. So we did a lot of scrapping, um, but but albeit small arm stuff because the IED threat was so low and, and the bomb threat was so low. So that was really good. But for me, you know, the whole, the Af I only did one, I've only done one Afghanistan. Um, you know, there's guys out there that have done three, four, five, and I look at them and I think, wow, you know, you've got to be lucky, haven't you, to do that many? Um I did one uh, and I really enjoyed it and it was a great time. We took uh, very few casualties really and, and we just had a good time. You know, we were, we were young lads. We were going around doing, like we said before, we were doing the job we trained to do and we were, we were just relying on the guys next to us really. It was a simple life. 
you know we just all you had to do was just get through the day and stay alive and that sounds a bit chad and a bit cliche but it totally was because i had young lads who were walking you know i was a team commander and i had young lads who were walking point for 14 1500 quid a month you know thinking is this my last step every time they stepped out the door and you got to look at that and think you know fucking hell that's i've got a lot of admiration for them lads and and we're, you know, we're still in touch now. We've still got a WhatsApp group from our recce team and all that sort of stuff. And so the me- the memories really from from the whole of that Afghanistan trip were just phenomenal. Everything from uh, having a piss up in the tent on Christmas Eve, um, right through to walking out the door and and doing the job and scrapping. You know, it was all it was just a great great time to to be to be in the military, wasn't it really? Just a finishing point a little bit before we tie this up. What is one of your most memorable contacts, if you're able to spin a story? Yeah, so we had a, it was a, it, it was a, an op we did down in Marja and we were briefed up that there, were, there was a, an LS that we were going to, a landed site that we were going to land on. And there was also an alternate landing site. And we were crammed in the back of the Chinooks and how, how we ever got away with that many blokes in the back of the Chinook, I don't know. It can't have been safe, but we were crowned in the back of a Chinook. You know what it's like? Everyone sat on the floor, sat on the kit. Um, and we were flying into this landing site when it came across the net that the, the landing site we were going into, um, the Apaches had gone there before us and, and found that it was actually occupied by Taliban. So we uh, had to go to the alternate landing site. And we were coming into this this alternate landing site and it ended up being just a real muddy boggy field because it had been rainy season and i remember that the the chinook came in and the wheels just got stuck and everyone in the back of the chinook just got thrown forwards and there was guys everywhere there was kit everywhere and it took a good couple of minutes for everyone to to sort sort their shit out basically and get their kit squared and, and to get off the back the back tail ramp but the minute we stepped off that tail ramp there was rounds whizzing above our heads and uh, straight away we were into it. So we, I, I headed into a bun line where I lined out my team. And I remember the other recce teams were on the other side of a building, which was just to our left. And uh, we were there for a couple of minutes. And I, I sort of had my map out. I was trying to work out where we were, you know, which buildings were what on the spot map. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a car comes flying around the corner. Um, and, and my GPMG gunner and my 2IC who was hoofing, they just both opened up on this vehicle. The vehicle went off the road, uh, burst into flames, and um, some guys got out. And, and at this point, I was still looking at my map. I had no clue what was going on. I hadn't seen the car. Luckily, the other lads had. Um, and these three guys got out and just started engaging us from no more than 10 metres away. It was so close. Um, um, and we ended up, uh, there was an exchange of gunfire. There was an exchange of grenades, believe it or not. Um, and we we fire maneuvered back, um, and we did it. Actually, it was actually caught on Apache. Uh, the, the the Apache that was buzzing above had actually filmed it and recorded it and caught it on camera. And I remember watching it when we got back to to um, to Kandahar. But it, when you looked at it, it was a textbook fire maneuver extraction, and then a peel left behind the building. Um, and do you know what? All six of us came out of that alive. And how on earth we did three dead Taliban, six six bootnecks good to go. And yeah, wow, what a 
what a crazy, crazy 15 minutes, you know. And then we had, we obviously had to go through once the car had finished um, and settled down because there was RPGs um, cooking off. There was rounds fizzing over our heads. And and it was, a, yeah, just a crazy 15 minutes. But when we went back and, you know, confirmed three enemy dead and that then led on to another pretty much two days. We were, we were attached to L Company. And L Company had a real good couple of days, you know, fighting with the Taliban. And I remember it being in the, in the news that there was something like 103 Taliban were killed in three days. Well, I don't know how they worked that out, but it is what it is. And yeah, we had a real good time. But yeah, what a what a crazy 15 minutes of my life that was. Mate, stories like that, I got goosebumps with you talking about it. I mean, look, I've, I've got people and stories myself that are yeah, very, very similar to that. <laughs> it's going to sound really cliche and a little bit cheesy, but I love hearing about stuff like that too, because there are, so, look, you're talking about 15 minutes of a four day up, all the other stuff that would have been involved in that. There is so much more story background and, and things like that, that just, that, that come with that. And there are so many people, so many different stories. And it's just those 10 years, 10, 15 years, of 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 Herricks and and Telic are iconic. They've got to be. And you listen to some of the stories very similar to what you were just talking about there, and it's it's mind blowing. I know I get a lot of feedback when I talk to people like yourself from a civilian population. They're like, we just hang on people's words. And do you know what? I can understand it because I'm I'm hanging on every word that you're talking about there. Like you know, you're totally right, mate. Um, you know that was 15 minutes of a four day op of a six month tour, just just for me for one guy. You know, and you multiply that by a thousand, two thousand, three thousand guys over ten years, and you know I've I've got books here of all sorts of bits and herrits and para ones and bootneck ones and all sorts of stuff but you know you read some of them and you think actually yeah you know and, and especially when the paras on on, on herrit four the, the housing you know that taliban coming in the door and yes you look around now and i don't think you can ever be far from someone you know walking down the street who's not who's not been in a situation of some sort you know over the years and you look at all the veterans out there and you know, all the stuff that's going on with, with veterans and PTSD and stuff like that. And you've got to think, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on out there and it all it all comes back to, you know, bits like that, doesn't it? Do you know what it reminds me of a lot? It reminds me of, do you remember Sharp? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the ITV TV series Sharp with, um, uh, what's his Sean name? Bean. Yeah, yeah. Sean Bean. And just reminds me of that. It reminds me of like him being away in Spain and Portugal and France and then and then coming back to England and you know having an uprising in London and stuff like that. It, it just it just stories always remind me of that. I don't know why it's it I'll, does and, and it, I'll never forget I came home I came home from Afghanistan and I was in Tesco as you are doing the shopping and, and someone was getting, I can't remember what it was about. Someone got so worked up over something so trivial in the queue. And I just thought, you know what? Like there's far worse things going on in the world right now. And you're worrying about, I can't remember what it was like, but the price of something rather than, yeah. Yeah. But Hey, you know, like I say, you look, you look at guys and it's great because one thing the core does really well is things like reunion. I mean, obviously not in the moment, but reunions and, you know, annual dinner and dances and that sort of stuff where guys get together and sit around and spin dips. And, and that is, 
the key really isn't it is talking about the things that happened and I don't know how true it is but I, someone told me once that the reason PTSD cases were so low in the Royal Marines after the Falklands was because they sailed back and it took, so they had two weeks basically of sitting around on ship you know spinning bits with each other and and, and talking about what had gone on whereas the paras and, and others had flown home and apparently I don't know how true it is like I say but apparently cases were far higher but there you go so yeah I mean it's, it's always great to spin a bit isn't it over a wet so hopefully right. we'll get to do that soon beautiful mate it's beautiful yeah. just to finish off then have you uh have you got anything on the burner at the moment you got anything going on no not really um we're all pretty stale at the minute aren't we um yeah no it's just trying to get out do fears keep yourself sane I mean keep the, the missus and kids keep them sane as well because you're all you know you're all cooped up again aren't you and I'm working out um I'm off to, short term I'm off to Scotland luckily I'm I'm getting um, a, a two-week trip up to do some military training in Scotland so I'm I'm quite looking forward to that actually it's, it's over a year since I've even been away anywhere you know this time last year I was just coming back from an op um but I haven't been anywhere since and and as much as I like to be at home you know a year is a long time to not go away especially when you've had 22 23 years of being away a lot um, and like I say as much as I don't want to be away it'd be nice to get a bit of time and, and get some snow in of course Matt Hoey, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you on the podcast. I appreciate your time, buddy. And yours. Take care, buddy. Speak soon. Yeah, you too, mate. And that's it. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share and subscribe on your podcast provider. And also follow The Grumpy Surfer on Instagram. Thanks for listening.